Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi Williams, and this is the long, slow, Under Armour Divorce Sports Business Podcast, The Sportacast. See, now there could be so many schools, like in my head, I'm thinking, I remember the UCLA Under Armour story, but this is now interesting because when you're talking about college football, and I'm obviously speaking in generalities and historical reference here, uh, if I'm talking about sort of your BCS powerhouses and playoff teams, Cincinnati doesn't always come to mind. I still think Bob Huggins and basketball, frankly. Nick Van Exel, thank you very much. You have a Cincinnati player that you would reference? Uh, I do not, no. Um, certainly not in basketball, no. Football, there are a few that come to mind. But Okay, well, anyway, the football team is pretty darn good, but they are having a divorce with Under Armour. It is not happening all that quickly, and therefore there are ramifications in the sports business world that I will allow you to detail, Mr. Novi Williams, because you're the guy that wrote the story. Yeah, I think it's important, Scott, to kind of set the stage for the, the way all of this came together, which is that back in 2015 and 2016, when Under Armour was the high-flying, Wall Street darling, challenging Nike Sign them all up! Exactly. Sign them all up! They decided that this was going to be a, a, a big part of their marketing, was to sign as many pro and college teams uh, to deals as they could. Um, and you saw that in the marketplace. They did massive deals with uh, with Notre Dame, with Wisconsin, with UCLA, with Cal, with Cincinnati. Uh, there's a whole bunch of schools that signed Under Armour deals around that time. And they became some of the biggest college apparel deals in the country. Cincinnati, which is not a Power 5 school, plays in the American Athletic Conference, they, got, they signed a 10-year, $50 million deal, Scott, which is essentially what Nike was paying Alabama at the time, just to give you a sense of, of kind of what the what the market, how much it jumped up when Under Armour was spending this much. Uh, and then fast forward five years, uh, Under Armour uh, kind of struggled a bit uh, in its home market overseas. The stock dipped 85%, Scott, uh, from, a part, from, a, from a point in time in, in 2015 to 2020. Uh, and as a result, they started rethinking a lot of these marketing deals. And they wanted to get out of them. You mentioned UCLA. Uh, they they claimed force majeure on that contract and essentially terminated the UCLA deal. That's now in court in LA trying to figure out who owes who and how much money. Um, it was a more amicable split at Cincinnati, but a lot more confusing one. Uh, I won't get into all the details here. People should actually read the story. But essentially what happened was Under Armour wanted out of the deal. There was five years left and about $25 million left on it. And the agreement they, they agreed to was uh, Under Armour would pay $9.75 million to kill the deal right there. And then in addition to that, Cincinnati signed a three-year supply agreement to continue buying apparel from Under Armour for three more years, uh, which is a very bizarre way of kind of unwinding a deal that ends up just killing the thing one year earlier. The way that Daniel Libet, our colleague, described it was, this is essentially a couple that decides they want a divorce, but decides they're going to spend the next three years living together, just sleeping in separate beds. I, I, know, <laughs> such a, I know such a couple. There you go. Yeah, so it's not it's not unheard of, I guess, but it certainly highlights kind of the weird world right now in, in, in college apparel. And and to put this paradox, I think, in the starkest relief, Cincinnati is the number two team in the country right now in football. They are, I think at this point, have a pretty good shot of playing in the college football playoff. And as you know, Scott, in the next three years, they're going to be moving to the Big 12. They're going to be a power, fi power five school. All those things should probably make Cincinnati more desirable to a Nike or an Adidas or even an Under Armour than the school has ever been. 
And yet, because Under Armour is no longer paying to keep this market afloat, the next Cincinnati deal is going to be significantly cheaper than the one it signed in 2015 with Under Armour. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I am often wrong, as so many people in my life like to tell me, including you. Um, but didn't you FOIA the contract from UCLA uh, when they, they signed a Nike deal after Under Armour, and it was for less than half what they had been getting from UA. Do I have that right? That's exactly right, Scott. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think if, if you're kind of trying to read the tea leaves of what's in store for, for Cincinnati, uh, UCLA is, is a perfect example. They had a really big, it was a 15-year, $280 million deal with Under Armour. They signed it a few months after the Cincinnati deal came through. Uh, that was one of the biggest apparel deals in college college sports uh, writ large. And yes, that deal was terminated, as, as I said. Uh, and as you mentioned, they signed a new deal with Jordan Brand, Nike's Jordan Brand, pays less than half a, a per year of what, the, uh, of what the Under Armour contract did. So again, now that Adidas and Nike are no longer competing with the big spending Under Armour in these deals. The, the, the market has kind of crashed to a degree. And sadly for Cincinnati, that's the market they are now in negotiations for, for their next apparel partner. A very basic market forces principle at play, whether it's a player looking to get a contract from teams or it's TV networks and, uh, and leagues more bidders equals more money. You take a high spender like UA out, and overall, the numbers will come down. Speaking of numbers, and these, I think, are be going up. We're talking percentages. I mean, we're inundated with DraftKings, FanDuel, everything. You can bet on everything these days. Like You're just inundated with the ad blitz. Uh, it, it's everywhere. But I didn't think I'd be able to wager on whether Major League Baseball has some sort of work stoppage uh, during the offseason. Alas, as our friend Brendan Coffey tells us, there is a, a way, a vehicle by which I can do such a thing. So explain. And not just a vehicle, Scott, a vehicle that's approved by regulators, by, by yeah. the, 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 the CFTC. Uh, yeah, Brendan Coffey had, had a good story uh, this week in Sportico about a company called Kalshi. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. K-A-L-S-H-I. You called it the most 21 st- 2021 story out there. This feels, yeah, it, it, the combination of uh, everybody likes to invest now in alternate asset classes and sports gambling and, and predicted gaming are becoming bigger and bigger things. All we uh, needed was for this company to be part of a SPAC for us to <laughs> real, real in the entire exactly, year. and then add in the. I think you and I would probably agree the the, the very dark clouds that are looming over baseball right now from its uh, collective bargaining agreement talks. Uh, and you have, I think, the perfect twenty twenty one story. Uh, this is for people who are familiar with the website. Predict it. It, it seems like it's a similar business model uh, in which. Um, it's kind of a market exchanges. You, you buy contracts that settle either at zero or at $1, depending on what the end result was. You see it in politics a lot. Uh, predict it does, I think, you know, in some ways, maybe better than polling in some ways in, in terms of kind of predicting um, kind of the results of big political elections. But I think Kalshi's business model is really interesting in the context of all the things we're talking about, Scott, in that as sports betting uh, spreads, th- there's kind of alternative ways to do various parts of sports betting. And this is a new type, right? This is essentially prop betting. Um, the, the odds are uh, generally for, for exchange trading like this a bit better than they are for, for a, a sports book at, at a, at a, at a DraftKings or a, or a FanDuel. And as you said, this is not a, this is not a wager you can get at a legal sports book right now, but there is at least a, a legal uh, trading market approved by regulators in which you can do it. 
Now, let, let's just kind of look at the baseball situation because we, we saw football get a long-term deal. We have the NBA has long-term labor peace. Baseball has gone a very long time without any sort of stoppage. And that's a good thing because remember, remember way back when, when the World Series was stricken because of labor problems. But here we go again. It's the same things bubbling up. I guess if we were going to look at each side, you know, the players are looking around and they're seeing megastars making a lot of money, but a lot of teams, at least they would allege, are not really into being competitive. So the, the overall dollars there are, are not being spent. From the team side, what has eluded the Major League Baseball owners is the holy grail of the salary cap. You do have taxes on certain limits, but as you know, if you can get a hard spending limit, you know that's your biggest expense. If you're a pro sports team owner, your biggest expense will always be your players. Uh, and if you can get what's called cost certainty at the negotiating table, that's the holy grail. Sure, they'd love to have it. The question is, how far is each side willing to go? Where is the health of baseball now? Can it withstand such a thing? Uh, can it withstand a stoppage right now uh, at a time when you're trying to get kids involved? You have an RSN problem. You're trying to kind of breed that new uh, new audience of the younger kids. How do you bring them in if they're not playing? Tough situation for players and owners right now. Really difficult. And, and, and Scott, we have talked a lot about how that 10-year deal that the NFL signed, how much that helps a TV lot of deal. The commercial yeah. relationships that, that yep. you sign, partners want to know that there's a lot of there's a lot of stability there. And right now, baseball does not have it. Um, I was fairly young back in 1994, but from what I understand, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. That it was a really damaging breakup for for baseball to not have a World Series that year, to have to go you know so much of that season without baseball being played. It took the league, it took the sport a while to recover from that. And I think you're right. The, the, the question now is it's a more fragile time, I would argue, for baseball and, and for Major League Baseball from a commercial standpoint. Uh, this seems to be coming at such a bad time for, the, for, for baseball, for owners, for executives, for players, etc. All right. It could be time. And we should have theme music for this one. I, when you can tell, Scott's going to tell a David Stern story. Do you know the one? I, do you know the one I'm Bingo. telling? Yeah, do you, uh, you, know, you know the one I'm I, telling here? I do not uh, know right now. No. During the lockout, I believe, again, I can't, I, I struggle, you know, I've reached a certain age and I struggle to remember, you know, which lockout, but during one of the lockouts, 1998, 99, I don't know. I'm walking down Manhattan street with David Stern and a guy is driving past us, slows down, I opens now know window. What the story is, okay, <laughs> okay, but it's very pertinent. Okay, I, thought, I, I knew if I started telling it, you would you would know. Guy, you know, slows down, rolls down window, proceeds to scream at David. You know, f you, f the players. I'm never watching another game. You guys suck. The whole thing, right? And off he goes. You know, hits the gas pedal. Off he goes. And David turns to me and he says. I don't worry about that guy one bit. He's coming back. The same passion that kind of prompted him to roll down the window and scream at me, that's how I know I got him. Because he's passionate enough to do that. He will be passionate enough to come back and watch the games whenever we do come back and play. He said, the person that scares me is the person who looks at me, realizes, hey, there's the commissioner of the NBA, and just keeps going. Couldn't care less. So my question to you is, can I ask Rob Manfred and Tony Clark, the head of the Players Association, hey, fellas, let's go for a stroll around Manhattan. 
You know, I'm curious how many people are screaming at either one of them that better get their act together. You better not go out on lockout strike, whatever it may be. You better be around because if not, I'm never coming back. Or is the response from, you know, John Q. Public, uh, there's the baseball commissioner. I don't care. What, what are we getting in baseball? Yeah, it's a great question. It would be it would be a great experiment. And, and to take it one step further, when we get to, I believe the collective bargaining agreement expires on, on December 1st, um, it does not seem like we are going to have a deal on December 1st. But if this thing continues, you know, months and months into, into the new year, do we th- where do we think public sentiment plays out here? Do you think there is sympathy for the, for the players who are obviously a, a lot of them handsomely paid? Do we think there is sympathy for the owners? Where do we think the public is going to net out? if there is a long-term labor fight in baseball heading into 2022? My experience tells me that because the players are obviously the face of the game, that they're always the ones that bear the brunt, even if, and I'm not saying they're right, if it's perceived that they're in the right, whatever. I say the players always bear the brunt because then the fan never gets past the idea of somebody making that much money to play baseball and how much that person would love to do it. And you should just be thankful that you get millions of dollars to play the game and all that. Years ago, one of the ideas, I I believe they did it, uh, but one of the ideas that the NBA Players Association came up with was a deck of playing cards with the owner's faces on them and including their net worth. And they distributed that to the media. That's a great the, idea. Yeah, with the hope of getting out there. Like, I know that Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning, Jawan Howard, all David Falk clients, by the way. Uh, I know those guys are making Boku Bucks, and the guys today are making even way more than that. So you can go, if you want to go LeBron, Steph, you know, the players are making this. But please be aware of the net worth of people like Steve Ballmer of the Clippers. You know, you got to know the net worth of the baseball owners. But even so, I'm not sure that your casual baseball fan can pick out a lot of the owners of these major league baseball teams in a crowd. They certainly can pick out the star players, and a lot of a lot of the finger of blame is always pointed at the players. It's funny you you said something on a podcast a number of months ago. I think it was when we were interviewing Mark Lazary, uh, the co-owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, about how every labor fight that happens one of the things owners always talk about is how they're bearing all the brunt of the risk here. Uh, They're putting up the money, all of that. Uh, I think in the past, it's been kind of hard to see what the risk was in some ways, although it does kind of feel like in the past 18 months, we've at least seen a better understanding of what that risk can be in that something could happen, in this case, a global pandemic that just totally changes, at least temporarily, the economics of, of, of the sport that they're operating in. Yeah, like uh, every single revenue stream you count on goes away. Yeah, absolutely. But the players also don't get paid. So, um, yeah, the players have always said, remember Michelle Roberts talked about players getting equity in in the rising team valuations and how do they make that happen? There's vehicles by which they can make it happen. Not easy, but things can be negotiated. Are they really partners? Things like that. I I don't know, to be determined. Uh, But you know who's cashing in right now? Not a great segue, but you know, best I could do on short notice here. The Manning family. I love it. Oh, yeah. All the Mannings now have a tie-up with Caesars. And I mean, you could see this coming a mile away, you know, especially with the Manning cast, uh, their stature in, in, in all of sport, their ability to transcend the sports pages, that one of the companies was going to lock them up for big-time promotion. 
And uh, I guess Caesars has a deal with Archie in, in New Orleans. So not the biggest surprise that the Mannings are, are now going to be a big face of Caesars. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a deal, as you said, that, that, that covers Archie, the father, Eli and Peyton, the two former quarterbacks, and Cooper, uh, the, the oldest brother. Uh, and for people who are kind of wondering, Cooper Manning, who, who's that? He's in a nationally televised ad campaign right now with Uber Eats. I don't know if you've seen it, Scott. But just to give you a sense of, of kind of the, the, the power of the Manning brand, he is a, a brother who was, albeit a really good quarterback when he was younger, obviously didn't yeah, make got it hurt. to the NFL, got hurt. But he is... It, 20 years after his playing career is over even more uh, in nationally televised ad campaigns because his last name is Manning. And that is kind of the power of the Manning brand. One thing I'll add here about Caesars is that geographically, the Caesars business has a lot that it can gain from from the Manning family. Uh, Archie played in New Orleans. The boys were raised in New Orleans. Caesars has a property in New Orleans. Eli played college at Ole Miss. Caesars has a property in Mississippi. Peyton played in Indianapolis and in Denver. Caesars has properties in Indiana and Colorado. Eli played his entire career at a stadium in New Jersey. Caesars has a property in Atlantic City in New Jersey. So there is a whole lot geographically about the Caesars business that makes the Mannings hyper-relevant in specific markets in addition to the national market. All right, let me put you on on the uh, on the hot seat just because I can, and it's really fun, and I don't think you'll know the answer, which is oh, like really fun for me. <laughs> I mean, what high school did Peyton Manning go to? What's the big powerhouse high school in new orleans I nothing have. i can see folks, <laughs> I no see, folks i wish you could see the video maybe we'll put this on twitter can we put this part on twitter where you're shaking the real quick the, the glazed eyes the oh my god i have no idea come on really like you, know. You, you know in massachusetts there's cambridge ridge and latin you know there, there are some Tower memorial day. yeah blair Academy. Day. Yeah. all right isidore newman high school jeez <laughs> go, go look that. it up <laughs> <laughs> Go look it up. Oh, man. Terrible, terrible. Well, didn't Cooper, I believe Cooper, didn't he work in like oil and gas? Which, by the way, if you are Manning and you work in oil and gas and you're in Louisiana, that's a good guy to have on your staff. Yeah, you definitely want Cooper Manning. But exactly, I love the fact yeah. He can probably open some doors. One Why other not Arch? Yeah, exactly. Why not Arch? I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Cooper's son, who is 15 or 16 right now. I think he's the highest rated football prospect in, in the, the high school class of 2023. He is not included in this deal. Uh, he obviously, you know, NIL deals are, are coming down the pipe. I don't think we've seen a single NIL deal between a college athlete and a sports betting company. A lot of athletes, most college athletes are not old enough to gamble legally in legal jurisdictions. I'm sure that's kind of part of it. But but yes, this deal, Scott, does not include the next generation uh, of Manning superstar Arch Manning. He's going to go out on his own and make more money than all of them. Good for him. Certainly Speaking possible. of money, yeah, we want if you want a real 2021 thing, certainly private equity investment in sports is a big 2021 thing. And you got your hands on some docs from Major League Soccer that kind of outlines the do's and don'ts, the guidelines of private equity and private capital into the league. Why don't you give me what stands out and uh, what you wrote about? Yeah, so a couple of things stand out here. Some of these are, are very similar to the rules that the NBA laid out uh, early last year as well. Um, private equity firms can, can invest in up to four MLS teams. It's five for NBA. And both leagues have this rule where you know no team can sell more than 20% of its equity to a single private equity firm, and no team can sell more than 30% of its equity overall to a collection of private equity firms. There are some more details in here, Scott, that I think are particularly interesting around kind of the way these deals may be unwind in the future. And I'll highlight two of them right now. One, 
Major League Soccer is, is requiring that its controlling owners keep drag-along rights so that in the event that the team is sold overall, they can essentially compel a private equity partner to sell their stakes alongside the controlling owner. Um, that certainly gets, th- th- that avoids the problem of having to sell controlling stakes while there's someone on the side that didn't, he wasn't brought in by this ownership group that is somehow kind of still involved with the team. In the parlance of it all, they can't roll. These, 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 uh, <laughs> these private equity folks can't roll. There you go. There you go. You gotta, you then, gotta be forced out. Yeah. And then in the other, in the other scenario in which the a private equity firm wants to sell its stakes, uh, the controlling owner of the MLS team has to have right of first negotiation to buy those stakes back. So there is at least some thought being done in, in, in major league soccer about, you know, let the, the, these, these investment funds have a time horizon. It could be five years. It could be 10 years. Who knows how long it is, but in the event that they are ready to exit, the controlling owner has to have the first crack at buying that equity back, which I think also makes sense. So as we've talked about many times, Scott, this is a totally new era of, of professional sports ownership in the U S and leagues are trying to figure out exactly what should be allowed, what shouldn't, how to avoid some of the concerns of mixing these two worlds. And, and this is at least Major League Soccer's attempt at doing that. Yeah, and in talking to the Aries, Six Streets, um, Arctosas of the world, Galatiotos of the world, it's interesting that the private equity model here in pro sports doesn't seem to be that traditional horizon. It seems as if everybody's taking that longer term view. They're looking to partner with owners and teams where the interests go far beyond just the club itself. Uh, we've talked about these these franchises as platform companies and, and sort of parent companies, whether you've got real estate and media, you see people reaching out to owners and to franchises where the business is far beyond just the team. So and you, and they, you, they, they like more than that. You, Scott, have your finger on the pulse here better than probably anyone in the, in the, in the country. When you think about private equity investment in sports, uh, we've seen a lot in the NBA. It feels like, at least publicly, the most of any of the leagues. MLS has changed its rules. Major League Baseball has also changed its rules. Do you think we're going to see kind of a steady drumbeat of investments in other leagues? It's it's interesting to me that we've seen so much kind of public discussion of NBA private equity deals and very few in the other leagues. The answer is yes. Uh, at some point, even the NFL, which bars corporate ownership because they don't want sort of your quarterly, quarterly earnings having to affect how the business of football and do you invest in a team or if things go bad. Uh, I just think that these things are appreciating at such a rate that at some point your control owners, and we've already seen them tinker with rules, making it easier for people to come in and buy, that at some point that the owners will come calling and say, remember, they can change any rule they want. Like that, that's the beauty of the rule. It's like the Constitution, right? It can always be changed. You just need to, if you want to change the rules, you get together, somebody makes a proposal, and we vote. If, we, if, it's good in, if it's in all our interests, we can change the rules. I think at some point we will see that. And you know what I knew we would see also? It just took a little while. I knew we'd see mobile betting in New York State. <laughs> because, because people like you were going halfway across the George Washington Bridge, you know, allowing your phone to geolo, you know, geolocate to Fort Lee, and did your FanDuel DraftKings business, I don't mean to leave anybody else out, sorry, all the betting houses, but or Caesars, Foxbet, uh, you know, whatever, I'm trying to get them all in so nobody gets, uh, gets angry at us in case they <laughs> want to sponsor. You can sponsor the podcast, by the way, if you want. Uh, <laughs> uh, so you go across the bridge there, you geolocate to New Jersey and make your bets, and then you go home and enjoy your Sunday football or whatever it may be. Uh, now you don't have to. Some, some big news for, for New Yorkers who like to bet on sports. There are tons of people like me, Scott, who live in New York City, live potentially close to a border with New Jersey that are getting their fix in by going to New Jersey. New York lawmakers are aware of that. 
sports betting in New York has been legal at casinos for a while now, but as you know, mobile betting is the thing. They, they don't want, I'm not going to drive up to a casino in the Catskills to, 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 to do my sports betting. Um, you may, yes, you may, <laughs> you, you, you may, no, you, would, say, spit, no, maybe. You, you would not drive up to the Catskills. You would bike to the Catskills and place <laughs> your bets. That's the difference here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, but yes, there was movement uh, last week. The New York Gaming Commission recommended uh, the two groups that it will, it seems like will be giving licenses to it is a lot of the major players scott DraftKings, FanDuel, betmgm winbet caesars points bet all in the group of, of, of sports betting operators that seem to be getting licenses the two that were left out the, the, the most notable two or three fox bet was left out barstool sportsbook which is a partnership with penn national left out and then fanatics the, the group yet to launch but the sports betting operation that Michael Rubin and his team are putting in place, they had teamed up with Jay-Z, if you remember, as kind of part of this push to get a New York license. They were not one of the groups selected. So a lot of winners and a lot of losers uh, in, in the New York sports betting license race. And I use winners and losers there. I mean to have them in quotation, Scott, because as you know, New York has a very high tax rate here. It's 51% of gaming revenue, 51% of revenue. And there are a lot of people in this industry who think that there's no way that you can be profitable uh, if you're operating at, at a tax rate that high. So well, give me a the compare losers and contrast, may be the winners though. and the winners may be the losers. Give me the compare and contrast. 51% New York. Give me the number elsewhere. So it's 13% in New Jersey. Um, so, so if you think about that, the, the, the challenge here is that, let's say, just pick one, if you're DraftKings. You are, you're operating in New Jersey and Fort Lee at a 13% tax rate. You're operating across the George Washington Bridge in, Fort, in, in Washington Heights at a 51% tax rate. You can't have drastically different odds for me, depending on where I'm standing on the bridge. So you kind of have to balance those things. I saw someone joking on Twitter, it's a great idea, that DraftKings should be hiring Uber service to drive all of its heavy hitting sports betting customers in New York over the state line into New Jersey so they can take their action at a 13% tax rate instead of a 51% tax rate. It would pay for the Uber 20 times over for its high rollers. But it's going to be a challenge for these, these, these operators, especially the ones that operate in both places, to not let that 51% tax rate be so obviously carried down to the betters themselves. So can I have, this is my business idea, ready? You and I, we get a floating barge. And it just goes back and forth across the Hudson just far enough. The heavy hitters board the barge, you know, on the Hudson River. We, we, we push off. You're paddling. We get just far <laughs> enough to where everybody geolocates to New Jersey. Place your bets, ladies and gentlemen. And by the way, as a resident of New Jersey, I, I, I'm, I'm happy because I, I pay crazy amount of property taxes. I'm proud to say that we're not, you know, the highest taxed in the mobile sports betting game. Way to go, New Jersey. <laughs> Scott, I love, I love this barge idea. And honestly, like the FanDuel's DraftKings points bets, like they may be, they may be willing partners in this. The, the, the difference between their high rollers gambling in New Jersey versus New York is such a huge difference uh, on the balance sheet there. there there's going to have to be at least some kind of encouragement, I think, for people to kind of keep going to New Jersey just because of how the economics work. All right. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. Everybody hates the underscore. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Cora Veltman is our social media editor. She loves it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Podcast Network. <laughs>